today. Uh, Habakkuk, as you know, uh, you probably should know, it's only three chapters. It's only 56 verses in total. And it's the only Old Testament book that consists entirely of a dialogue or a conversation. Uh, is that me? It consists of entirely of a, a dialogue or a conversation between God and man. Other prophetic books, the major prophets, the minor prophets, uh, consist mainly of a record of those prophets' uh, messages to the people. But Habakkuk is unique among the prophets in that he didn't, at least not in his written record that we have before us, uh, he didn't speak for God to the people. He spoke to God about his questions for God, about the things that were happening in his day that he couldn't understand, and his struggles, uh, his personal struggles, uh, making himself vulnerable in what is recorded here, his struggles to trust God when life makes no sense. Now, just to recap for those of you who may have missed the first two messages or may have forgotten, um, in chapter 1, Habakkuk begins questioning God because there was such sin and, and evil and suffering and injustice within his nation, Judah. He was crying out in prayer to God to come and to sort things out. And in some way, even in revival, uh, to bring his people back to himself. That was the, the, the gist of his cry to God initially. But we saw that no matter how much he prayed, it seemed for quite a while, God didn't seem to be hearing him or listening to him, at least as it seemed to him. There was absolute silence in response from heaven. But God did hear him, and he eventually told Habakkuk, he said, I'm going to do something so marvelous and so wonderful in your day that if you saw it, you wouldn't even believe it. And so Habakkuk, whose, whose name means embracer, embracer, that's right. At least one or two of you remembered. Um, he clung to God. He embraced God and was probably initially quite hopeful. You know, God's going to do something. Something marvelous. Maybe the Messiah is going to come. Maybe the kingdom will be restored. Maybe we'll have, at long last, a revival in the land. But then God says something completely unexpected to him. Instead of bringing revival, God says he will bring the Babylonians, whom uh, he describes, God describes as fierce, uh, fierce people, impetuous, to be dreaded, feared, a law unto themselves. He said they're going to swoop down to devour in order to bring judgment on God's people for their disobedience and their sin. And so, if you remember, we looked at how to trust God when circumstances don't seem to make sense. And then in the second message in the series, we learned that everything that occurs in history has a place in God's divine plan. And that's mirrored also in the ups and downs of our own personal lives, which calls us to constantly walk by faith and not by sight. And that's the gist of the first two messages in the series. So we, as we get back into the word uh, in Habakkuk 2 this morning, we'll, we'll see this morning that we're also called to be a people who demonstrate faithful living in an unfaithful world. And then tonight we'll discover the progression that Habakkuk makes from questioning God initially to actually trusting God. 
Because when Habakkuk begins, uh, when he begins by worrying and, and, and being fearful about what's happening around him and to him, and on seeming, God's seemingly indifference and his inactivity in the midst of it all, he ends up by rejoicing in faith and worshipping God, regardless of what was happening to him or around him, regardless of his circumstances. Well, that's, that's for later on tonight. Well, let's, uh, let's read together uh, the word of God here in Habakkuk chapter 2. And although we read the first four verses, I'm going to go back to the start. Uh, we read the first four verses last time, but I'm going to start at chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, Habakkuk says, So, having prayed to God, he said, I'm going to stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts and I look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint to this complaint and then the Lord replied write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a, a herald may run with it for the revelation awaits an appointed time it speaks of the end and will not prove false though it linger wait for it it will certainly come and will not delay see he is puffed up his desires are not upright but the righteous will live by faith indeed wine betrays him he's arrogant and never at rest because he's greedy as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn saying woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion how long must this go on? Will not your debtors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their victim because you have plundered many nations. The peoples who are left will plunder you for you have shed man's blood and have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him that builds his realm by unjust gain to set his nest on high, to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall cry out, and the beams of woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, and the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskill till they are drunk, so that they can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup of the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction, uh, the destruction of your animals will terrify you. For you have shed man's blood and you've destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol since a man has carved it? Or an image that teaches lies? For he who makes it trusts in his own creation... He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up, cannot give guidance. It's covered with gold and silver, but there's no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. So let all the earth be silent before him. Father, what a marvelous word this is. It was marvelous in the days of Habakkuk and Lord, we ask that you would make, make it marvelous to us even here this morning, Lord. May your Holy Spirit uh, interpret it, Lord, to each of our lives that we might understand, Lord, what you would say to us uh, through your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we live, I think you'll agree with me, in an increasingly faithless world. 
faithless world. A world of false gods. A world of constantly shifting values. A world made up of self-centeredness, self-centered decisions. And so choosing to stay true to our biblical beliefs can be difficult. Even for the most faithful amongst us. And it gets more complicated when our convictions pull us further away from mainstream values, the world's values, uh, and living that life of faith while choosing to be counter-cultural or or swimming against the tide can be very tough at times. I'm sure you, you understand that. As world events seem to be gathering speed towards the sure and certain return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the question that he asked in Luke 18 and 8 takes on a greater significance with every passing day. He said, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? In other words, if Jesus were to come back today, in this moment, how many people of faith would he find? People who were marked by faithful living in a faithless world. Would you be one of them? Part of the difficulty of our experience and our expression of our faith is the fact that we're all born with an innate, uh, insatiable thirst to know. We have a curiosity factor. Uh, You know that. A thirst to know and and, and to, to be in the know. And the only way we know how to quench this thirst, of course, is by asking questions. Now, when we were young, the questions were more questions of curiosity like, uh, Daddy, why is the sky blue? Uh, Mummy, why is the air invisible? Uh, Where does the light go when you turn it off? Does the light in the refrigerator go off when you close the door? Why do I have to eat broccoli? But when we get older... We don't lose that urge to to question or to ask about things, but instead it would seem that our questions would go deeper and take on perhaps more urgency. And we're especially prone, I think, to ask those serious, deeper questions when we're in the middle of, of life's difficult situations and trials. In fact, as we read through the Bible, we find a lot of people asking big, uh, deep questions. Abraham and Sarah, a childless couple facing an unfulfilled promise asked will a son be born to a man a hundred years old will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90 or when when everything else had fallen apart and his health and his family and his personal fortune uh, when there was nothing left Job can't help but ask God your hands shaped me and made me will you now turn and destroy me Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? That was a deep question. So as well, after being ridiculed by one of the Old Testament priests, denounced by his family, rejected by his friends, and having other respected prophets contradict and laugh at him, Jeremiah asked, why was I even born? And then, of course, in the face of a storm that threatened to take their life, The disciples in a small boat find Jesus asleep and they they wake him up with the question, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Deep questions asked in the difficulties of life. Notice that these questions and many more are asked in the face of either seemingly unfulfilled promises 
or, or difficult circumstances. Because when times get tough, people, uh, even those of us who profess faith, invariably start directing our questions towards God. And right in the middle of this tradition of questioning God stands this prophet, Habakkuk. His ministry is different from every other prophet in the history of Israel in that as far as we know, he never says a word to anybody else. And as you read through the text, Habakkuk didn't receive the answers that he was, he was searching for. And yet through the process of his questioning, he comes to a conclusion that empowers him to move on and to keep going on. As he writes in chapter 3, we'll see it later tonight, verse 19, he said, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on and to go on the heights. What changed, I wonder, between his questions and then his affirmation of confidence in God? It was the realization that he had come to in, in chapter 2 and verse 4. The righteous will live by his faith. Because it's our faith in God that's the key to unlock uh, the door of assurance and uncertainty in the midst of confusion and when life doesn't seem to make sense. An elderly lady was very upset by her real and sometimes imaginary troubles. And out of frustration, her family sat her down one day and said, Grandma, we've done all we can for you. You just have to trust God for the rest. And the look of despair spread over her face and she replied, Oh dear, has it come to that? Folks, it always comes to that. But we might as well begin with that. Righteous people live by faith. And that means that people who truly follow God trust him enough to be obedient. They answer the call to faithful living in a faithless world even when life doesn't make sense. You know, when you feel like you've been hurt, and maybe you have, or, or betrayed, remember, the righteous will live by their faith. That means you trust God enough to be able to forgive like he tells you to. When you watch somebody who seems to be doing well by doing something wrong, and you wonder what that's all about, remember, the righteous will live by his faith. That means you don't do the same thing that they're doing, but you continue to do what's right, knowing that by faith, that God will somehow reward your obedience. When you're being controlled by a bad habit or an addiction that's overpowering you, remember the righteous will live by their faith. That means that you trust God to know that he can give you the strength to exercise self-control and to be a victor instead of going through life being a victim. So let me encourage you this morning, amongst other things, to turn your struggles, uh, if you're going through a struggle, or if you're going to go through a struggle, to turn your struggles into questions for God. Now to some people that might seem sacrilegious to, to actually question God. We need to realize that the supreme ruler of the universe harbors no insecurity. He doesn't fear our questions. He simply desires that we trust that he knows the answers. Which is what it means really to live by faith. Something valuable. That would be lost. Listen, there's something valuable that would be lost in the painful process of overcoming life's difficulties. If God somehow took care of every painful experience, you know, we, when we face a long period of waiting for God to work, 
We're called to exercise patience and we're called to exercise steadfast faith and to leave matters in his hands. God will reward us for our patience. Not too soon, not too late, because he's always on time. And as someone has cleverly put it, patience is a virtue that carries a lot of weight. Get it? W-A-I-T. Any sense of delay in God answering is on our part. In the heart of man. Because God works out the details and timings of everything according to his own purposes and according to his own plan. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 28, you know it well. We know that all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. But you know, it's in the next verse that puts this into real context. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he did He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. They don't get lost in those big words, foreknew, predestined, conformed. Paul is simply telling us that God is using the things that happen in this life, the good, the bad, the ugly, to conform us, if we're willing, to conform us into the image of Jesus by trusting and obeying him. So how in the world... How in the world do we ever think we could be like Jesus if we didn't have to endure some things? Jesus' own life was marked by suffering and rejection, culminating, of course, in the cross that ended his human life. And I can't help but notice that as the perfect life of the perfect Son of God was coming to an end on earth, even he had a question on his lips. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, he turned his eyes heavenward and he posed a haunting question, My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? And while I can't say that I understand all the implications of that question, I do know this, that wasn't a question that lacked faith. Because the last words Jesus spoke before he died were these, Father, into your hands, into your hands, I commit my spirit. David says in Psalm 31, But I trust in you, O Lord, my times are in your hand. And I love what the English hymn writer William Freeman Lloyd has written in one of his hymns. My times are in thy hand. My God, I wish them there. My life, my friends, my soul, I leave entirely to thy care. My times are in thy hand, whatever they may be, pleasing or painful, dark or bright, as best it may seem to thee. My times are in thy hand. Why should I doubt or fear? My father's hand will never cause a child a needless fear. Yes, my times are in thy hand. I'll always trust in thee. (coughs) And after death, at thy right hand, I shall forever be. What a a prayer poem of, of a conqueror. First chapter of the book of Habakkuk is dominated by the questions and even the protests of the prophet. He's greatly annoyed by the sins of the nation, even more annoyed that God seems to be doing nothing about it. In fact, he's just, he just about accuses God of failing to do his job, as, it's, as it seems to him. This is a dialogue between a frustrated man of faith and a God, uh, a God whose ways are sometimes beyond any of our understanding. And we left Habakkuk last time, if you remember, as we came into chapter 2, he was sitting in his watchtower, Waiting on God. 
And so it is that when we experience what seems to be maybe something unjust or something unfair in our circumstances, <coughs> we can offer all the commentary that we want. But at some point, we have to go and deal with God in relation to it. Because everything that occurs in life has a place in God's divine plan for us. If you don't come to accept that and understand that and believe that, you're going to go through life with difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. Chapter 1, the prophet has been worrying and wondering, asking God, why is this going on? Why aren't you doing something about it? How long is it going to go on for? And then in the beginning of chapter 2, while he wrestles with what all this means, he's, he's watching and he's waiting. Got a chance to answer him. Because so often in life, you know, we do so much talking, we don't have time to listen. Especially to what God wants us to hear and to know. Sometimes, even when we're trying to listen, and God's trying to tell us something we don't want to accept, we're going, la, 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 don't want to hear that. There's several things, first of all, about chapter 2. First, with the exception of verse 1, it's God who does all the talking. And secondly, what God says is dominated by five woes or condemnations that he pronounces on the Babylonians. And the third, uh, note the way that God ends his response, chapter 2 and verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent before him. Worth noting, as we'll see tonight in chapter 3, that Habakkuk eventually ends up worshipping and witnessing. The reason for this change of heart has to be found somewhere in chapter 2, and it is Habakkuk 2 and verse 4 is the heart of the book, and it's the heart of the gospel even today. And it's one of the greatest declarations of faith to be found in the Bible. It was rediscovered by the reformers. The just shall live by faith. <coughs> and it gives us a contrasting picture between those who are prideful and arrogant and rebellious and those who are trusting and humbly submissive to God. You know, I can just see Habakkuk. There he is at his post. He's in his watchtower, as it were. His hands are on his hips. You know, he's waiting. He's waiting for God to change his mind, maybe, about using the Babylonians to judge Judah. But God's first words to the questioning and the praying prophet could be summed up, you know what? Petition denied. I'm not going to do that. No uncertain terms, God emphatically announced that his plans were moving ahead in spite of the prophet's protests. In effect, God said, write this down. I want it to be a permanent record because future generations are going to need it. And write it in such a way that when they read it, they'll, they'll run to share it with others. In other words, this is a message worth the retelling as we're doing this morning. It reminds me of Matthew 28 when they came to the tomb. In the post-resurrection, the angel said, come and see. But then said, go and tell. In Ezekiel 33 and 3, in those days, watchmen were responsible to warn the city of approaching danger. And if they weren't faithful to their task, their hands would be stained with the blood of the people who died. It was a serious responsibility. And today, we who know God personally also bear a responsibility to warn people to turn from their sin and to turn to God in repentance. So that we may be able to say with Paul in Acts 20, 26, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. <coughs> and then as well as the command to write, Habakkuk was told to wait. Because what God has said is not going to come to pass 
immediately. Remember Hebrews 10, 35 through 38, the writer says, Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. Notice how just as Habakkuk was to wait for the eventual judgment of the Babylonians, so we are to wait on the Lord's sure and certain return. For when he comes back, he will judge sin himself and he will establish his righteous kingdom on the earth. There was to be no turning back. It was going to happen just as God had planned it and when he said it would. The day of Judah's judgment and the instrument of God's judgment were both already on standby. However, at the same time as God underlines the destruction through judgment on Judah, he also prophesies the eventual doom of the Babylonians themselves and promises that the only way for the people of Judah to, to, to preserve their life through this judgment is by persevering faith. He says in verse 4, See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Even though destruction is decreed for the nation of, it, of Judah, there's hope for those who will hold fast to their faith, hold their trust and confidence in God. In other words, the great power of the Babylonians will, in the end, come to nothing. Because verse 14 says, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. And Habakkuk needn't fear, needn't fear that uh, this rebellious and fiercely sinful nation uh, will have the last say. They won't. The earth is the Lord's and ultimately he will fill it with his glory. And so the chapter closes with these awesome words. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And the question for us in all of this this morning is which part of the fourth verse of the second chapter of Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, which part of that verse are we living in? Are we living in the first part? Living lives that are puffed up with pride and self-sufficiency? Or are we living in the second part? Living by faith. You see, pride puffs us up. We develop a false sense of who we are. And someone has well said that some Christians grow while others swell. not about who I think I am or what others say I am. It's about who God knows I am. You see, pride not only puffs us up, it also twists us and persuades us to set our own standards. You know, everybody does it. It's okay. If he or she can do it, why can't I do it? And so I want to tell you there are two kinds of people in the world. Those whose souls are not right and who trust in themselves for salvation. In their heart they believe that their good works are sufficient to save them. And then in contrast there are those whose souls are righteous. And who stop trusting in their own goodness and their own good works. And they're trusting in God's grace. They're justified by his righteousness. And they know that only he alone can save them from their sins. Which, which one is you? While the full-blown doctrine of justification by faith alone and the righteousness of Christ alone as taught by Paul and in Romans and Galatians was yet, not yet fully known by Habakkuk in his time, this is where the seed was sown. And so while it looked to Habakkuk as though the Babylonian victory would be the end of God's people and of his promises to them, the vision he received was 
a promise that God would also judge all those who were proud and unrepentant sinners. They had to believe this by faith. And so he needed to endure the days of judgment that were coming by continuing to walk in faithful obedience to God's word. The word faith in verse 4 also means faithfulness because the righteous are not only saved by faith, they are uh, to persevere by faith as well. Faith is the cause and faithfulness is the result. In other words, the righteous man, the righteous woman trusts not in themselves but in God in every circumstance. Their faith is directed upwards, not inwards. And faith, therefore, is the ability to accept as reality what we can't fully understand. So the person who walks by faith in God knows that God does all things right and God does all things well and God does all things in his own time. Amen. Running the universe is God's business. But you and I have a daily obligation, don't we, to live by faithfulness, to trust and obey, even when we don't understand all of God's ways. Pastor Tim Keller says, when we say, I can't believe in a God who would do this or a God who would do that, what we're saying is we don't really want a God who's beyond our own understanding or comprehension. Biblical faith has two aspects. On God's part, there's the act of revelation, the circumstances of life that come to us, that call for a response. And on our part, there's a response of faith that evaluates God's revelation as trustworthy and responds wholeheartedly to him. Those who please God will follow his instructions, regardless of their understanding. And acceptable service to God has always been based on active, obedient faith. How else could Noah persevere for 120 years building an ark? Or what else would motivate Abraham to leave his homeland or willingly take Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice to God? What about Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Gideon and Samson and David and Samuel, all the prophets? The common characteristic that all of these individuals had in common was their faithfulness in every circumstance. Against this background of wrath and judgment, God also gives us three wonderful assurances uh, to encourage Habakkuk and, and through him to encourage you and me in our faithfulness. The second part of verse 4 is the assurance of his grace. We can't overstate the importance of this verse. Uh, Romans 1 and 17 uh, is similar, where the theme is about how a sinner can be justified before God, just as if we'd never sinned. Galatians 3 and 11 is a theme about how the just shall live. And in Hebrews 10, 38, the theme is all about faith. The opposite of faith is not unbelief. The opposite of faith is pride and self-sufficiency. Proud people don't trust. They take care of things by themselves. And remember, you may be able to make it, you may be able to make it in life by trusting in yourself. But listen, you won't make it all the way to heaven without personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 14, there's the, not only the assurance of God's grace in verse 4, but verse 14, the assurance of God's glory, which is the sum of all that he is. He's glorious in his wisdom and in his grace and in his power. Moses, remember, dedicated the temple and the glory of the Lord moved in. But then Israel sinned and God wrote, Ichabod, the glory has departed, 1 Samuel 4, 21. Then the Israelites built the temple again. And the glory of the Lord moved in again, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. 
But then in Ezekiel's chapters 1 through 11, the glory departs again. And God's glory didn't return until Jesus came. Hallelujah. And in John 1 and 14, it says, And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Assurance of God's grace. The assurance of God's glory. And then in verse 20, the assurance of God's government. God's in control. He knows what he's doing. He hasn't taken his hands off the steering wheel. He's in his holy temple. He's on his throne. He knows what he's doing. And he calls us to faithfully follow his ways. One of the things that I believe the modern church has largely forgotten is that while God is a God of love, he's also a God of justice. And the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, wrote in 1784, I tremble, he said, for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his, listen, his justice cannot sleep forever. God says to all of us, Numbers 32, 23, be sure, be absolutely sure, make no mistake about it, your sin will find you out. Sometimes our sins slumber. They don't bring judgment right away. Sometimes they do. But either way, God is a God of justice. And even Babylon, whom he was going to use to judge Judah's sin, would eventually be brought down by their own sins, especially the five areas he singled out for condemnation called woes. <clears throat> See, there are things that God hates. And there are things that make him righteously angry. Don't listen to that modern talk that God's a God of love and that's all he is. All the Old Testament prophets preached against sin and they preached the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man. But today in our generation, it's not politically correct to preach any of those things anymore. You can't do it. The old Church of Scotland preacher, the Reverend Hamish Mackenzie, once said of this type of preaching, hell fears it. Earth requires it and heaven ordains it. And I would add, and God blesses it when we preach about the righteousness of God and the unrighteousness of man. Because if God is to heal and, and to forgive and to save a sinner, the sinner must be wounded by the two-edged sword about their own sinful self-righteousness and about their own lack of being able to approach the very presence of a holy God. And woe to me or anyone else if we don't preach that gospel. And so Habakkuk is now moved by God to condemn the unrighteousness of his own day. Verses 68, woe to him who, who piles up stolen goods, makes himself wealthy by extortion. That's God's condemnation of selfishness, of self-interest. We're living in the selfie generation. God hates that. Looking out for number one, looking out for me, having no consideration for anyone else. Verses 9 through 11. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, settling his nest on high. This is God's condemnation of covetousness. An insatiable desire for more and more. It was a sin of their age and it's a sin of our age. The cry for more, more, more. And how many Christians and how many ministries have been destroyed because of the love of more money and more power, more control. Verses 12 to 14, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. That's God's condemnation for exploitation, forced labor, trafficking, the casual shedding of the blood of the unborn when things are more important than people. Think about the Babylonians going through cities, plundering, taking everything, including people for themselves, building their empire bigger and bigger, 
And do you know what God says in verse 13? God is permitting them to do it for his big bonfire. Because one day it's all going to go up in smoke. And that's going to be the end of it. Then verses 15 to 17. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors. Pouring it from the wineskin until they're drunk. This is God's condemnation of drunkenness. Ancient writers confirm that the Babylonians were addicted to wine. And it's ironic that Babylon itself was conquered while King Belshazzar and his leaders were having a drunken banquet. And I have to tell you that two and a half thousand years later, three thousand years later, God hasn't wavered in his condemnation about drunkenness. Especially amongst his own people who should know better. Alcohol consumption is the world's biggest drug problem. Wonder in Proverbs 20 and 1, God says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Are you wise or are you not wise? And the last woe, verses 18 to 20, Woe to him who says to wood, Come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. This is God's condemnation of idolatry. Not just man-made statues or images, but what about those ways that we look in any other direction besides God? In order to get what only God can give us. Are you committed to God being your all in all? And to say with the hymn writer. The dearest idol I have known. Will e'er that idol be. Help me dear Lord. To take it from my throne. And worship only thee. So as we wrap this third part of the series up this morning. Let me leave you with just two pieces of wise, wise counsel. As I see it. From Habakkuk's experience of God so far. First of all, we shouldn't allow circumstances to cause us to stop persevering in our faithfulness to God. The prophet's resolve was to trust in the Lord in spite of the circumstances uh, through which he himself was even going to suffer. Like the prophet, we need to practice a faithfulness to God which will maintain its obedience regardless of what life faces us with. Faith is not a singular event confined to a very distinct circumstance in a point of time and space. It's a way of living. It's a way of living. Living. To me at times, and I'm sure it's a challenge to you, there nonetheless. And secondly, God's ultimate purposes, listen, not always clearly understood by just looking at our circumstances. Lord's purpose for his people in the Babylonian captivity was corrective discipline. And viewing it centuries later, we can see that God's chastening of Judah resulted in her survival as a nation and a people. <clears throat> Whilst in contrast, the Babylonian nation was utterly destroyed with no surviving remnant. Be living in a brief moment of time as we are even now in this moment of time, between two vast eternities, eternity past and eternity future, we're incapable of comprehending God's ultimate purposes and plans. <coughs> that again, living in a brief moment of time between two eternities, we are incapable of fully comprehending God's ultimate purposes and plans. God's disciplining of Judah was an act of his mercy and his grace. But those who lived through that time wouldn't have necessarily seen it like that. We look at the skirmishes of life. But the Lord sees the full picture. 
You see the tree, as it were, but God sees the whole forest. And so recognizing the limitations on our insight and knowledge should keep us from murmuring against God. We need to constantly and humbly submit to his providential government in the world in full faith that he knows what's best for us and be able to say God is good all the time and I am his witness. Center of the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ, of course, his sinless life, his atonement for our sins, his supernatural resurrection. He's the center of the gospel. He's also the center of our faith. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Righteousness of God is offered to us only if we exercise our faith to receive it. True biblical faith means rejecting all of our own works and trusting completely in the works of Christ on the cross. Missionary John Patton was translating the Bible for a a South Seas Island tribe when he discovered that the natives there had no word for trust or faith. And he he was stuck. Then one day a native who had been working hard came into the missionary's house and he flopped himself into a large comfortable chair and he said in his own language, it's good to rest my whole weight on this chair. And that became a revelation to missionary Patton that he said, I'll translate faith as resting one's whole weight on God. Habakkuk's been complaining to God about the problem of injustice. He asked how long it would be before God would vindicate the righteous and do something. And in the sacrificial death of Jesus, we see that Habakkuk's question was finally and ultimately answered because on the cross, Jesus took on himself the full weight of the kinds of injustices about which we complain and our sin. Resurrection, God's justice was vindicated when he raised the only one person from the dead who could actually claim to be righteous. Ross challenges us to go beyond the kind of solution to injustice that Habakkuk had hoped for. Habakkuk was promised a prophetic solution. The revelation awaits for an appointed time, he was told. I have to tell you this morning that the cross today points the way for which we're to live. We wait for the sure and certain return of God to make all things right. When we exercise faith in God, we're resting our whole weight on him. And it's also by faith that we're to live our lives every day. Faithfully, unfaithful 